Now Scott's here, so we can get started. Good morning. <laughs> Good news again this morning. We're going to look what God wrote. That's always a, a joy and gets us through the day. Some days limping, but it gets us through the day. Uh, I think, uh, forget who it was that said, uh, the line the line to glory is not a straight, the path to glory is not a straight line, but it will get you there. So that was extra. So let's pray together. Father, this morning, your people are coming to you again for two reasons. We really want to because we've heard and read what you've said and what you've done and that just brings great joy to our heart. But we also come because we really have to. We're a bunch of needy boogers. We struggle and we've crawled and so we come for repentance and ask you to accept that so you clear our slate so we can come and worship. Thanks for writing things down in black and white that when we forget or when we never knew that we can go back to it and see what you said and live our lives accordingly. Thank you for doing that in our lives. We're grateful in your name. Amen. For those of you that were here last week in Sunday school, you uh, may recall how God showed us in the book of Ezra how he used Zerubbabel and Ezra in the process of getting his chosen people back to Jerusalem, the promised land. But on a sad note, we ended the book with a difficult punishment scenario involving 115 men divorcing their wives, giving up their children, and sending them back to their foreign country. And this included 27 priests and Levites who were supposedly the spiritual leaders along with 88 others. One of God's specific commands and frequent warnings to his people was that they need to abstain from marrying people from other nations. God was serious from the beginning really trying to protect his people from uh, that type of sin which intermarriage always led to. Um, he carried out this concept throughout scripture as it was reiterated so clearly well even into the New Testament as he said in 1 Peter 2 9 but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, that you may declare. That's always the assumption, that we may declare. And he continues to take that from Genesis 12. I will bless you so that you may be a blessing so that all the people 
on earth will be blessed through you. God believed so strongly and he cared so intensely that he was willing to punish so harshly in order to have his name held up among his chosen so that all the world might see. All of us who experienced, uh, we've had the experience of being children and many of us experienced being parents and some grandparents and some of us even fortunate to be grandparents, great-grandparents. And we recall those times of joy as well as those moments of, um, well, let's just call it opportunity when it wasn't so joyful. This is particularly true when you've come from a big family with them all being scattered all over the country and at the same time, we would love to have them all come home for Christmas. Yeah, all at the same time. Even if it gets noisy and perhaps rambunctious, to put it mildly, but regardless, it's still a dream for many of us. That's the closest way I know of expressing a bit what I can only imagine that the ultimate parent, God, thinks of. He really, really, really desires all his kids to come home. Just after he'd given the Ten Commandments, he says to Moses in Exodus 25, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. That thoughts continued in John 1, 14, and the world became, word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He pitched his tent. He tabernacled with us. That's always been God's greatest joy, to have all his kids come home and love him. That would have been possible. He shed his blood. That was sufficient. Financially, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and his mansions have a whole bunch of rooms. But sin. So finally, in 538 BC, we find part of God's family who followed Zerubbabel coming back home in and around Jerusalem with a totally broken down wall and no temple. Really, they had no worship or sacrificial system at that time that was functional. A total token number of priests or Levites. Then in 455 BC, 80 years later, Ezra delivers a somewhat reluctant group of priests who had had to be specially recruited to go back home. And they discovered not only broken walls, but a broken people. Then 10 years later, Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem, primarily to build the walls around the city. So, does that finally mean that God's kids all came home for Christmas? Sadly not. In terms of an actual head count, uh, only a small percentage of those that were taken captive to Babylon ever returned for a variety of reasons. For many, they had found something better or more appealing or simply easier in Babylon. Many of their businesses were thriving downtown. Some of their kids were playing on the traveling basketball team. Imagine finding something better than God, what he was offering. Sadly, some of us have actually tried that. And for a period of time, we believed that we had found it. 
but either through personal crisis or extravagant grace, we're making that trip back home. Today, as we look at the book of Nehemiah, we have an opportunity to see how God used a plain man to get involved in being a part of God's means of caring and protecting his own city, that of Jerusalem. But it's much broader than that. It's one more aspect of God's historic record of his plans for his people that all the world may know. When Israel's king was taken hostage and the people captured and exiled to Babylon, Judah, as an independent nation, ceased to exist. These books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, they provide a historical account of the Jews regathering of their struggle to rebuild and survive. This narrative demonstrates that they were still God's people, and he has not forgotten them. A couple of things about Nehemiah and the book he wrote. He was not a native of Jerusalem, but rather a newcomer there. Very little is actually known about his childhood, except that he's a son of Hakaliah, according to chapter 1, and that he had a brother named Hanani. It would seem that his great-grandparents were taken into captivity when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians back in 586 B.C. One commentary stated that he was probably born in Babylon, now Persia. Sometime after Zerubbabel arrived in Jerusalem with the first group of returning Israelites, that was with about 49,000. Um, he was about 28 years old when he moved to Jerusalem and had apparently moved up the political ranks in Persia. As indicated in chapter 1, verse 11. For he was the cupbearer to the king. He definitely was not a nobody, but rather a very trusted person on King Artaxerxes' staff. He was the one who tested all the wine before the king drank it. Once he tested it, and obviously he lived, then the king drank it. And we don't read any instances where he didn't. So he must have passed the test. It was safe for the king. Obviously, someone like the monarch of Persia would certainly pick for that position a man who was wise, consistently honest, and trustworthy. His position alone reveals a lot about his intellectual capabilities, his emotional maturity, and his spiritual status. Nehemiah probably wrote the book that bears his name shortly after these events ended, about 430 B.C. Chapter 1 finds him in the Winter Palace of Susa when some visitors from Judah arrived, including his brother Hanani. Obviously, one of the first questions is like us guys always do in the parking lot, stand there and kick in the dirt and say, well, what's happening? So he told them, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. That's when the difficult answer came. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Not good news. For someone who had been born there, who had not been born there, or even visited Jerusalem, Nehemiah had a great love for the hometown. These are his people and their land. Jerusalem represented Jewish national identity. It was blessed with God's special presence in the temple. And their history center 
centered around this city from the time of David. He loved his homeland, his people, and his God. The Jews in Judah, which was now a province of Persia, were in great trouble, and as a result, his first reaction came in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept for 10 minutes. No, that's not what he said. I wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I'll confess to you this morning, it's been a long time that I prayed and bowed down and fasted and mourned for a long, long time. It seems like Daniel and Zerubbabel had also done that same thing. This was not a five-minute quick fix-it prayer. This was a many-day, painful, honest, pleading prayer. He immediately refers to God's covenantal relationship with Israel, and then he identifies as a fellow sinner as he makes confession. As he pleads and confesses to the Lord, he obviously knew the God of Moses and the promise and the covenant. He knew who he was speaking to ten times. In verses 10 to 11, he says, you and yours, as personal as he could get. When the need was great, so was the consistency in prayer. That had been Nehemiah's heavy concern for four months. Chapter 2, verse 1, we read, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, which was the first that Nehemiah began to indicate his intense concern, he prayed for four months, which was certainly tells us something about his God as well as his relationship with his God. Not only did he do first things first, like intense praying, he also used wise judgment in his decisions about proper steps to take, especially in light of the position in the royal court of Artaxerxes. It was totally out of line for anyone in the court to show any emotion or feeling or pain, or joy. But God, being a God of grace, even in the high political arena, he permitted not only a moment of sadness, but even a moment of recognition on the part of the king. God used his sad look, unnoticed by the king, and a brief question-answer interchange between Nehemiah and King Artaxerxes to meet some real key needs way back in Jerusalem. His priorities in verse 4. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. His politeness in verse 5. If it pleased the king. Uh, verse 6. Honesty. So I set him a time. An expression of needs. If it pleased the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me with safe conduct. Oh, and by the way, a credit card would be helpful for some lumber over there. And the result, chapter 2, verse 8. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. And actually even more, the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So with God's blessing and Nehemiah's organized practical planning, we're almost uh, home free. Uh, nope, not again. 
as we've seen throughout the life of God's people, Satan seems to show up either as a Genesis 3 sly serpent or an Amos or a First Peter or Second Peter roaring lion. But whichever, he seems to show up. And here once again we read in chapter 2.10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Sanballat was the governor of Syria and Tobiah was the governor of the Transjordan under the Persian king there. Now, fair question to ask is, so what's the big deal? Why were these two government officials so concerned about the rival of Nehemiah and his small band of exiles? A couple of possibilities are one that back in Ezra 1, when Zerubbabel returned with the first group, he had sent some tension, so he refused help from the Samaritans, which may have caused some bad relations. Second run is Nehemiah was not just any ordinary guy who happened to be traveling through the country and stopped in for a while. He was the king's personal advisor and cupbearer, and he showed up in Jerusalem with the king's approval to rebuild the city. And certainly, rebuilt Jerusalem had to be a threat to the Samaritan officials who had been in charge ever since the exile. And then third, this just happened to be the third time that someone's come over from Persia And that's a threat. Enough is enough. The increasing number of people in Jerusalem had to make both Sanballat and Tobiah feel threatened. Their mocking and ridicule didn't call for a time of backing off or a time for a fistfight by Nehemiah. He simply states the facts. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you... You have no share in Jerusalem or any claim to the historic right to it. Sounds a lot like Jesus' approach in the wilderness when Satan came to tempt him. Jesus says, it is written, period. Aren't we glad he demonstrated how to do that? So it's off to work we go. The wall that needed to be built around the city of Jerusalem was two and a quarter miles as, as the city at that time was a quarter mile wide and three quarter mile long. Chapter three lists boring reading, but he does list that. 32 different people groups who worked on the wall. With all these work groups, they averaged building a wall 450 feet long. That's from here to the north end of our parking lot. And it was 39 feet tall and 10 foot wide. That's a lot of rock. There was Eliashad, the high priest, the men of Jericho, Uziel, the goldsmith, Hananiah, a perfume maker, Shalom, a ruler with the help of his daughters, priests from the surrounding region, and a whole bunch of others who regularly, whose regular daily occupations didn't exactly sound like a mason contractor. Verse 28 says, demonstrates a very practical principle of this construction. Each in front of his own house. It's a big deal with that. Each in front of his own house. First of all, there's not too much travel time to and from work. 
Second of all, who is going to do the best job? Are you going to do it on your own home? Or are you going to do it on some rental somewhere out there? They took personal pride and do it. They owned these houses. They were not simply temporary rentals, and their work certainly demonstrated that. Not surprisingly, there had to be someone in the group that was less than enthusiastic. Every group has them. Chapter 5, we read, The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. I'm not sure of any connection with this, but a couple months ago when we went through the book of Amos, we find that Amos was a farmer from Tekoa, and that's the town that they wouldn't help on this. When Nehemiah quoted God as saying that with his help they would have success, Nehemiah was not implying that everyone would feel successful all day, every day. Some days were more difficult, certainly due to outsiders like Sanballat. The ridicule continued, especially when the wall reached half its height. Another problem. So Nehemiah again prayed first, then posted a guard day and night. As you can imagine, the people in Judah said, the strength of our hands is getting weak. And do you see how many rocks there are? 450 feet is a long way. Time out for a team meeting. What a godly and wise Nehemiah. Verse 14 says, After I look things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Who was affected by that hard work and the rubble and sandblot and potential enemy attacks? Everyone. Who did Nehemiah address? Everyone. Yes, God did provide wise leadership in the person of Nehemiah not just a man with leadership skills under the previous leadership of King Artaxerxes, or even a man who simply honored the God of the nations, but a man of everyday practical wisdom like Solomon. Aren't we at Redemption Hill grateful that God sent us two of them who think those things through? In addition to our regular Sunday worship and preaching biblically-based sermons, We've had separate special biblical teaching sessions. They've covered some of our daily living issues such as abortion, vaccination mandates, critical theory, racism, and church discipline. But even with all our opportunities with godly teaching, I highly suspect that we at Redemption Hill, from a Nehemiah pastoral perspective, are also frequently found to have to deal with some particular difficulty. Due partly to godly preaching and counseling, we may have temporarily corrected our sinful direction. But guess what happens Tuesday morning and Thursday afternoon? Another sin, another conflict, another potential downhill spiral. Such was the case in the middle of the Jerusalem wall construction project. Think through the Jewish congregation. Uh, Who were they at that time? What were they comprised of? 
are basically two types of people present. First, the wealthy class who had financially done well in exile, uh, along with some of the descendants of Jews who had come 98 years earlier with Zerubbabel. And then there was the recent exiled poor who had just arrived. Everyone worked on the wall. Everyone had to eat. But some just worked and had food at their disposal due to their financial condition. Others had to work on the wall, but also had to farm to raise food to eat. This provided a situation where the rich borrowed them grain as they mortgaged their fields and vineyards, and even children. Verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 4. We had to borrow money to pay the king the tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, we have to subject our sons and our daughters to slavery. Seems like that issue of taxes and its side effects had come up before. If we go back 650 years to the times of the judges, we find the Jewish ancestors displeased with their leadership then too. They wanted a king back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, a king like all the surrounding nations had. They came to Samuel and said, we want a king, we want a king. And he said, you already had a king, Yahweh. But you disowned him. Then he warned them of the difficulties that they would face if they got a king. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. And guess what? And the beat goes on. Sin lived within the Israelites and continues to live within us. But God, again, he prevails. Chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that the work had been done with the help of our God. When God uses us at Redemption Hill and other churches in a godly way, and the word slips out on the streets, what will they think of our God? A precedence had been set. Again and again, God changes not only bad situation, but men's hearts, so that all the world might see. As we learned early in the book of Nehemiah, God sent him to rebuild the walls. Initially, this was to protect the Jewish people from the outsiders, but also to help maintain the Jewish identity. Jewish Jerusalem represented God's special presence in the temple. It's years of history and who God called them to be. The completion of the wall was a major step toward that end. But there was much more than the walls that needed rebuilding. The people's spiritual lives were in shambles. And that's what God has always been concerned about, the lives of his people. Nehemiah certainly was the governor and political leader, an extremely effective motivator and organized or organizer, but much more, one who God used along with Ezra to help restore the spiritual life of the Jewish nation. 
those two obviously were contemporaries, even though Ezra was much older. He had come to Jerusalem with about 1,700 reluctant priests 14 years earlier and had begun to diligently teach the spiritually deprived Jerusalem residents. Ezra was a descendant from Eliezer, Aaron's third son, and he took the priesthood seriously. Last week in Ezra 9, we saw how he viewed the remnant and the major demands God made regarding separating families who had married foreign women. That was not only a severe social and familial event, it was a major spiritual turning point and commitment. As we read in Nehemiah 8, we're entering the seventh month, the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets. People had been settled in their surrounding towns as well as many of them in Jerusalem. They'd been taught and encouraged enough so that they themselves asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses. They were begging for it. In verse 2, we read, So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. You may be seated. They stood all day listening to scripture. I hope we're not tested on that someday. Verse 7, the Levites instructed the people while they were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being said. May we never take that for granted. According to verse 66 and 67, the crowd probably numbered between 30 and 50,000 people. I suspect many of them were in the overflow room. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and the scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. The very next day, they all returned for more teaching and celebrating. They went out and brought branches and built themselves booths. Verse 17 reads, From the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like that. That was 950 years. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God, in spite of the fact that both the Israelites and us, in actuality, turned south spiritually in Genesis 3, it would have been great to think that there's moments when God's people really do respond to him and the intense reading and hearing of what God says. In chapter 9, three weeks later, we read the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israel's descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sin and wickedness of their fathers. Thirty-six times in chapter 9, we read them saying, you, as they recalled historically what God had done in their lives. You made the heavens. You give life. You heard our cries. You are forgiving. And all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully. We did wrong. Why might this not be surprising? Way back in Deuteronomy 30, 
We see, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you have come upon you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortune and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. He will bring you back to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. Step by step by step by step. It happened then, and it will happen today. Yes, they had all heard this before. And once again, if even for a short time we find God's people actually acting like God's people... After admitting that they were in great distress, we find them making a binding agreement and putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it, starting with Nehemiah. As we end, as we near the end of the book of Nehemiah, we also come to the end of the historical pilgrimage of the whole Old Testament. The date is about 4,400 B.C., which begins a period we call the silent years or the intertestament period, during which no further scripture was written until the coming of the Messiah in the New Testament. I used to think of my Bible as from Old Testament all the way through New Testament, page one through, and it happened in that order. This third, this is where the Old Testament historically ends, at the end of Nehemiah. So then we go to Malachi. What starts there? The New Testament. Well, what's all this in the middle? This is the poetical and the prophetical books that God used by all the prophets to write during this time. So, end of Nehemiah, your Bible historically is finished with the Old Testament. And we start the 400 years of silence. And no scriptural writing during that time until we begin the Gospels with Matthew. So I find great hope in that middle third when the history is all done. All the Old Testament you find listed from the end of Nehemiah to the end of Melchiah are either prophetic or poetic books, but do not add to the historical element of God's work in his people. In the book of Nehemiah, we have seen God's careful and meticulous moving. Physically, they've been used to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and also to mend some fences spiritually They were in desperate, that were in desperate need of repair. Chapter 11, we find Nehemiah involved in some of the final touches of helping God's people settle in their new homes, organize their priesthood roles, and dedicating the walls of Jerusalem. They were not simply a bag of a mixed bag of ragtag, dislocated foreigners painfully attempting to start a new career after a bunch of years of aimless wandering. Yes, they were definitely a group of sinners, but much more than that. They were God's chosen, hand-selected Jewish wanderers whom he was bringing back to Jerusalem, all according to his plan and covenant. Jerusalem is God's holy city, had been abused misused, destroyed, and abandoned 
but was now about to become the home and center of the Jewish spiritual life. Chapter 11 begins, Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. That was always confusing for me. I thought everybody went into Jerusalem. Most of them lived in smaller towns around Jerusalem. The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem, including this initial group of exiles that came back with Zerubbabel in 538. The priest who returned with Ezra in 455, and now the final return of Nehemiah in 445, their population was about 55,000. After 70 years in captivity, an estimated 80,000 fellow Jews chose to remain in Persia for personal or business reasons. It seemed to them to be easier to remain and to return to their roots. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually, Jerusalem had gone through a lot of turmoil. As we know from Solomon's time in the temple, it was a place of beauty, large population, and spiritual activity. As we just reviewed last week, when Jeroboam built the temple, many of the older priests and the Levites who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the size of the new foundation. And now as the wall has been rebuilt, the people began to settle in a more permanent way. And Ezra too, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their own towns. Since many of the Jews had previously lived in smaller uh, cities, it was simply easier to simply go back home rather than start start over in the dilapidated Jerusalem. We find some of the tribe of Judah settling as far south as Beersheba, 32 miles from Jerusalem, as well as some from the tribe of Benjamin who settled up north. The exiles who returned were a much smaller group compared to Jerusalem's population in the days of the kings. And since the walls had been rebuilt on their original foundations, the city seemed very sparsely populated. So Nehemiah asked 10% of all those living in outlying towns to move into the new city so it wouldn't feel so vacant. Since only a few volunteered, Nehemiah cast lots to see who would have to move. They had a couple reasons for not wanting to live inside Jerusalem. First, the local non-Jews attached a stigma to those that were living in Jerusalem, and he frequently excluded them from their trade deals. Second was, moving in Jerusalem meant that they had to rebuild their houses and reestablish new businesses. And third, it seemed that living inside Jerusalem required stricter obedience and social pressure from living in close proximity to the temple. You didn't hear it from me, but don't ever buy a house across from the preacher. Now that they're settled and have their U-Hauls all unloaded, it's time for a spiritual celebration right downtown Jerusalem. The dedication of the wall. It was a big deal. Chapter 12 says, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers also were brought together from the region and around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremoniously, they purified the temple, the gates, and the wall. 
This was all done by the sprinkling of blood of sacrificed animals. You can imagine the mess on their church parking lot. These same people, ancestors, left Egypt with the sprinkling of blood. Some of Jesus' closest friends left Golgotha in the sight of blood. Your and my salvation is totally dependent on the blood of the cross. Our God is a God of consistency. As part of this big celebration over the wall, Nehemiah formed two large choirs, both going up on top of the wall. The first choir, led by Ezra the scribe, um, passed above the house of David. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction, followed by Nehemiah, until they ended in the house of God. Verse 43, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced with the sound being heard far away. A long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the singers and the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. Music and worship has always been a part of, uh, music and singing has always been a part of the worship of God. As we've seen all the way from the, Moses to the Psalms, we find David having written 73 of the Psalms along with Asaph writing many others. Some were songs of praise, like uh, along with uh, others of lament. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? And Psalm 126, to celebrate their return from captivity. When the Lord brought back the captive to Zion, we were like men who dreamed our mouths were filled with laughter. What a joyous verbiage that is. David's psalms have been written over a period of 850 years from the time of Moses through the final captivity of Jerusalem. And yes, this day of dedication on the new wall around Jerusalem was a long-term continuation of what God desired from his people. And how could we here at Redemption Hill ever imagine worship without singing? and praise. Uh, Carrie and Andrew and many of you others, please continue your leadership and your education and your instruction as you lead us in this time of praise. That's the pulse beat I'd like to leave with our study of Nehemiah, but my longtime favorite Bible character, but unfortunately that's not possible. After serving as governor of Judah from Artaxerxes' 20th to 32nd years, we read in chapter 13 that Nehemiah had been called back to Babylon by the king once again to serve for approximately two years. After that brief period, he returned to Jerusalem only to discover sin right in the temple. Eliashab, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms in the temple. One of Nehemiah's former opponents of the building of the wall was Tobiah, who is now the father-in-law of the priest. As a family favor, Eliashab had provided him a room in the temple. 
Immediately Nehemiah threw them out, had the rooms purified, and they became again available for grain offerings and incest. He also discovered that the Levites and the singers had not been given their assigned portions, so he had to go back to, they had to go back to work in their fields. Due to Nehemiah's call, his purpose, and management style, some heads rolled and replaced with, as verse 13 says, men who were considered trustworthy. His intensity and seriousness was shown in verse 21. But I warned them, if you do this again, I'll lay hands on you. He wasn't referring to a charismatic blessing. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Obviously, he'd been called as a governor, not the public relations man. Nehemiah ends his journey in the process of helping bring God's own special people to his own special city of David with a repeated request. Three times in chapter 13, he asked God to remember something. Immediately after a very heavy-handed warning, in verse 22, he says, Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Verse 29, he reiterates, Remember them, O God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And then his very last words in verse 30, Remember me with favor, O my God. I must admit that my first reading of that was, Why was he so critical and condemning? After all, Jesus' first words on the cross were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. After further study with several commentators, this was not an arrogant statement of Nehemiah's past behavior or even his request to be uplifted for godly acts. It was actually a continuation of what Nehemiah had been doing all along, praying. Again, it was a plea for God to remember, not as if he would have forgotten, but remember in the sense of a plea for mercy. In all his prayers, he had laid himself out bare before the Lord and identified with the sins of God's people, even though he had not committed what they had done. He had seen first the devastation of their spiritual lives as well as the pain it produced on the part of a righteous God. His plea was not only for God to remember him and all that was involved in the building of the wall, but more so the process in rebuilding the lives of people. May we at Redemption Hill have that same urgency. We're now dismissed as we get ready to worship.